Well, hello there. We have another Q&A edition where today I'm going to be talking about whether or not to reinvest dividends when you're in retirement, Social Security widower benefits, and gifting appreciated securities, and much more in this, the 70th episode of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes, Social Security, Medicare, Portfolio Withdrawal Strategies, Annuities, Estate Planning, and much more. And now here's your host, Andy Panko. Hello, friends. Welcome back. Thank you as always for listening. We have another Q&A, otherwise known as Question and Answer Edition of Retirement Planning Education. It's been a minute since I did one of these. In case you didn't tell by now, I'm kind of making things up as I go with uh, in terms of the, the structure and flow of this podcast and content schedule. I think it's probably been a couple months, I think, since I did a Q&A episode, but, but here we are, um, kind of just picking and choosing topics as they come to mind or make sense, or uh, they, they tickle my fancy, and I feel like talking about it. So today, anyway, Q&A, got, got a, a bunch of good questions lined up that I will uh, hit you with. So looking forward to that. Hopefully you enjoyed last week's recap of the 2023 Social Security Annual Trustees Report. I really geeked out on that one, in case you couldn't tell. But um, that's, that's definitely valuable stuff to be aware of because I assume all of you listening are uh, near Social Security age or on Social Security already, or at least genuinely interested in things like Social Security. So hopefully that that last episode gave you a little, little something good to chew on. Uh, before we get rolling, must give a shout to my friends who are doing a limited engagement sponsorship of this, this lovely Retirement Planning Education podcast. My friends at Boomer Benefits. Who likes Facebook? I like Facebook. Hopefully you like Facebook. Now, there, there's a lot of garbage on Facebook, in case you couldn't tell. Um, hopefully you don't feel the same about the Retirement Planning Education, formerly Taxes and Retirement Facebook group, which is uh, kind of the, the genesis and the background of what spawned this podcast. But there's a lot of good stuff on Facebook, a lot of good groups, if you know where to find them and you know what you're looking for. One of which is Boomer Benefits Facebook group, which is called Medicare Q&A with Boomer Benefits. So who's Boomer Benefits? For those who don't know, it's a Medicare uh, policy agent agency based out of Dallas-Fort Worth that can work with folks all throughout the country. And they have a really good, really exceptionally helpful, I've, I've used it a lot in the last few years, Facebook group, you know, the Medicare Q&A with Boomer Benefits, where it, it is staffed. There's people at Boomer Benefits whose job it is to, to watch over, to administer, to answer questions, to, to weed out fake profiles and get rid of rabble rousers. Um, all about Medicare Q&A. There's, there's well over 40,000 members in that group. And it's just a, it's an absolute fantastic free for all if people ask questions and Boomer Benefits responds, uh, employees of Boomer Benefits respond and it's free. It's just like, hey, go ask a question. Boom, here you are. And other members chime in as well. And there's a lot of value to be had there. But you know what's nice is it's not just some, some random person sitting in a basement like me uh, running a Facebook group and answering questions. It's like legit employees of a real business uh, you know, who have real knowledge about this stuff answering it. So for anyone who has interest in learning or has specific questions about Medicare, wants to learn more about Boomer Benefits, definitely check out their Facebook group, Medicare Q&A with Boomer Benefits. I will be sure to put a link to the group in the notes to the show. All right, moving on. Speaking of basements, here we are. It's, uh, what day is it? It's Tuesday. It's two days before release day for this episode. Here I am in my basement, sitting at print, looking at printed out of questions. Um, I don't know why I'm telling you. I don't know. I just feel like riffing. It's nothing glamorous about me sitting here with my with my fancy microphone in my basement recording. But uh, hopefully, you all don't don't see how the sausage is made. Other than me telling you, you just get to enjoy and experience the magic of the final polished, produced, streamed direct into your ear pods, earbuds, whatever you use to listen to this uh, speakers. 
Uh, I don't know where I'm going with that. I guess I'm not going anywhere. So let's get into the questions. I'll try not to waste too much of your time today. Uh, my goal is to keep it to a half hour. I know I usually run long because I like to talk, so deal with it. Um, no, so today, first question, um, kind of long. I'm going to try to sum up. It's someone from Guam. Uh, I don't. There's not explicit permission here to use the person's name, so I won't, but this is my first question from Guam. Super cool. Uh, I'm going to try to recap here. Let me just, uh, I guess I'll sum it up. Um, we're getting ready to retire in the next several months and we'll start taking money out of our IRA slash 401k and taxable accounts and you know, regular brokerage accounts to fund our living expenses. We are 60 and 63 and have pensions to cover some of our expenses. We don't plan on taking social security until we both turn 70. Based on some early analysis and discussions with our tax planner and financial advisor, it seems wise for us to start taking some money out of the 401k IRA accounts now and avoid the large distribution requirement coming when we each reach the RMD age, otherwise known as required minimum distribution age which for those who don't know, it's depending on your age, 72, 71, now it's 73 or older or 75, where you need to start taking money out of pre-tax accounts like IRAs and 401ks, uh, at least a certain amount every year. Uh, moving on, more than likely, we'll take money from both our taxable and our, our pre-tax IRA uh, 401k accounts each year to fund our retirement. During our working years, we were not eligible to contribute to Roth accounts, so these people don't have any Roth money. Here's the crux of my question. We have dividends and interest. We have been reinvesting in both the taxable and the IRA 401k accounts from the get-go. Our living expenses will be more than our pensions, dividends, and interest. We will need to sell some assets, stocks or ETFs, to cover living expenses, uh, and our distribution will be under the 4% withdrawal rate. For those interested in what that means, I did an episode early on. It's one of the first few episodes about the 4% rule. Go back, go check that out. I'll uh, put a link to it, should I remember. Uh, I'm sitting here in my basement trying to pretend like I'm professional with this thing, but anyway, hopefully I remember. Um, Moving on with their, with their comment slash question. I understand the advantage of compounding with dividend reinvestment, but I'm thinking since we need to sell assets to cover expenses, we might want to stop all dividend reinvestments, long-term and short-term capital gains in both our taxable and uh, pre-tax accounts to lessen the requirement to sell more stocks and ETFs. I'm guessing with the taxable account, this certainly makes sense since we are taxed on the dividends anyway, but what are your thoughts on the pre-tax accounts like the IRA and 401k? Should we stop reinvesting dividends, interest, short-term and long-term gains in our 401k IRA accounts? Thank you for considering my questions. Thank you, uh, unnamed person from Guam. So yes, great question. And this is very common. While you're working, while you're accumulating, the magic of compounding, you know, letting interest grow on interest does wonders. Compounding is the eighth wonder of the world, some folks have said. Uh, that's going a little far, but it, it is quite, quite the phenomenon. So um, when you get dividends on, on stocks, whether it's in a normal taxable account, like a brokerage account, or a quote unquote qualified account, like an IRA, 401k, Roth IRA, you have the option to get those dividends automatically reinvested into more shares of whatever generated that dividend. And the compounding effect is like, yeah, might as well. You get the dividend, don't bother cashing out and using it because you don't have a need for it yet. Just pump it right back into buying more stuff. Let that stuff grow and compound over time. Makes a lot of sense. When you're in retirement though, the game changes. Retirement planning as a whole, distribution planning, decumulation planning is very different than the accumulation planning stage. Not not necessarily night and day, but there's a lot of different uh, mindsets and approaches and, and ways things could or should optimally be done in the retirement slash decumulation stage of financial planning and investment management than there is in the accumulation stage. And this is one of them. So yes, when you have a taxable brokerage account, assuming you are going to have needs to take cash out of that account, in your case, to cover living expenses, correct, might as well not reinvest the dividends. Like you said, you're going to get taxed on them regardless, whether you get the dividend cashed out and you know dumped into your bank account, 
or you get it automatically plowed back into more shares of whatever generated the dividend, you're still taxed on the dividend just the same in the year you got it. So you can't avoid the taxation. But yes, you might as well just keep that dividend hanging out in cash in your account. And you can take out that cash whenever you need it, whether it's monthly, quarterly, ad hoc throughout the year, your choice. But the point is, knowing you're going to need cash, sure, might as well just let the dividends sit there and hang out in cash. You can reinvest them if you want. The risk now is, um, you know, the markets can do squirrely things within the course of a year, you know, intra year. If you reinvest it, maybe they go up. You know, maybe those those reinvestment positions go up in value such that there's now more value you can sell when you do need a distribution, or maybe there's not. You know, maybe they tank. Maybe it's 2022 and uh, stock market broader stock markets down the better part of 20 percent. Um, that would be good if you reinvested those dividends beginning of the year. You take them out at the end of the year. In hindsight, it would have been better to just let those dividends hang out in cash and then you know take the cash out. So I don't want to say it's personal preference. Um, historically speaking, markets go up more than they go down. So that would say you know if you want to kind of uh, not roll the dice is a bad term, but take your chances. Historically speaking, reinvesting the dividends and then later selling those positions when you need it would have historically turned out better more times than not. But you don't want to necessarily bank on that, right? If you know you're getting, I'm just making up a number, 5,000 bucks of dividends paid out during the year, and you know you're going to need that money anyway during the year, might as well just let it sit in cash. So um, it's really up to you. This isn't specific advice for anyone listening. This is just general thoughts to consider. But yes, when you are retired and you are actively taking distributions, it does make a lot more sense to start considering uh, not reinvesting dividends. As opposed to when you're accumulating, yeah, go ahead, plow them back in. You know, let the good times roll, compound, compound, compound. Um, so that's a taxable account. The the um, qualified accounts like IRAs, 401ks, Roth IRAs, slightly different. You still have the phenomenon of if you reinvest it, you're now at risk of what if those reinvested positions drop in value. You know, from from when you reinvest it to when you need to sell the positions to cash yourself out some. So that risk is is just the same. What you don't have is is the tax um, angle. Now, not that that's really drive your decision, but Dividends paid within a qualified account, like an IRA or Roth IRA, aren't taxable in the year you you know you get the dividend. The money's simply taxed when you take money out of the account. In the case of an IRA or you know four hundred one k or anything else pre tax. So food for thought. Um, I, I you know I my opinion generally does make sense to turn off dividend reinvestment when you know you're going to be taking money out of an account throughout the year. But uh, again, historically speaking, history would have shown that it would have been better to have it reinvested. So. Do with that as you please. Um, again, not specific advice. I'm just trying to show as many sides of this of this topic as possible. Let you make your own informed decision. So, thank you for that question, uh, person from Guam. Very cool. Next, uh, this one actually had a, had a call, random call from someone. Uh, I didn't let him know I'd be I'd be running this question on the podcast, so I won't mention names. But it was a, a nice, nice fellow, super nice. Had a question uh, about his mother, who, who's in her 90s who has a house she's no longer able to be in because of medical condition. She's in a, she's in a home at this point. And so she has this house that she's had for decades, highly appreciated in value, had a question about if his mom were to sell the house, how does a capital gain exclusion come into play? And I'll talk about what that means, but just quick backstory. Um, so his mother, again, in her nineties, she and her late husband bought slash built a house in the 19. 50s or 60s, I think he said, at, you know, God knows what price. It was probably 30,000 bucks or something, if that at the time. Now it's currently worth like 700,000. They, they got an offer in hand to sell the house for $700,000. So he realizes his mom's quote unquote basis or, or original cost in the house is going to be tiny. Uh, the mother's husband died. I, I don't remember when it was 90, I want to say 90s. So there's going to be some 
step up in basis. Uh, I'll, I'll touch on that in a moment. But point is, the mother's original cost slash quote unquote basis in the house is exceptionally low, and she's going to be selling it for potentially seven hundred thousand dollars. So the question was, how much taxable gain is she going to have? Is there any exclusion? Uh, if so, how much? So what happens is when you're selling your primary residence, there's a lot more to it than this, but I'll just touch on the super high level. When you're selling your primary residence, if you owned it and lived in it for two out of the last five years prior to the date of the sale, and they don't need to be a continuous two years, it can be you live there sporadically on and off for months at a time, as long as you can cobble together two years worth of ownership and uh, um, uh, living in it, you know, use in, in two out of the last five years, you can get a uh, partial or potentially full exclusion on the gain of the sale of your house. If you are married and file a joint return, it's $500,000 of gain that you can exclude from being taxable. If you're single, it's $250,000 of gain you can exclude from being taxable. So let's put some numbers to this. Let's assume, and here's basic example uh, that kind of I discussed with this person. Let's assume the mother's cost slash basis in the house was $100,000, meaning they built the house in 1960 for 20 grand. They did a bunch of improvements along the way, added a deck, added an extension, blah, blah, blah. All in the, the cost of the house, you know, the, the original outlay slash basis was a hundred thousand bucks. The mother now has an offer to sell it for seven hundred thousand. If she sells it, it's going to be a six hundred thousand dollar gain, right? Seven hundred thousand market price or sales price minus hundred thousand cost is six hundred thousand dollar gain. The mother's single. She's the, the, she's been a, a widow, widower, a widow, widower, a widow for like thirty years at this point. So she's not married. So she's single. So she can only exclude two hundred fifty thousand dollars of that gain. So out of the $600,000 of gain, subtract the 250 exclusion, she's going to have to pay tax on $350,000 of gain on this house. Now, it's long-term capital gain as opposed to quote-unquote ordinary income, which means it's taxed at a lower rate. But still, that's a chunk of change for, uh, for, for mom here. So that was the question to me was, does she have any uh, gain exception? If so, how much? And his concern was because she's been in a home for a few years, does that still qualify? And ultimately, she still has two years of, of uh, uh, use in this house. So, so yeah, it still fits. But even so, there is an exception, not to get too off the rails here, but there is an exception. If you couldn't live in your house because of medical conditions, you had to go to a facility, you can still use that time toward your two years for what it's worth. So anyway, so in this example, the mother would have to pay tax on $350,000 of gains. But the mother is not in best health. And and so I, I asked and not to be morbid, I'm like, you know, how's your mom doing health wise? Not, not to be too morbid, but you know, is she great health living fine? Or is there a decent amount of risk or likelihood that she may not be on this planet, you know, within the next year. And the reason why I brought that up is because he, the, the caller and his sister are 50, 50 beneficiaries on the house. If, and when the mother passes. So here's where something called step up and basis comes into play, which he didn't know about. And it was almost like, not to oversell, but almost like revolutionary when I ran it by him. It was like, wow. So if the mother were to sell the house while she's alive, she has to pay tax on $350,000 of gain. If she would instead keep the house until she passes, and then the house ends up going to both kids through the, the probate process, you know, through the estate administration process, the kids inherit the house at its $700,000 current value. Let's assume it's still worth that much then. All of that unrealized gain the mother had magically goes away. The kids who inherit it are not responsible for, for that gain and having to pay tax on it. They inherit the house as if they bought it on the day the mother died and whatever value the house was then. So again, assume the mother passes in the next six months. I'm just making this up. And the house is still valued at $700,000. When the kids inherit it, they inherit it as if they bought it for $700,000. So if and when they turn around and sell it, 
for $700,000, there's zero gain. The kids pay no tax on selling that $700,000 house. Whereas if the mother sold it, she'd pay tax on 350 grand of, of gain. So that, that really, um, you know, took the person by surprise. It was like, wow, we need to rethink this and discuss this with mom and with sister. Again, not to be morbid with the mom, but like, this is a serious consideration. Uh, there, there's real sizable dollars at play here that, that should, to some extent, impact the decision of whether or not the mom sells a house now or, uh, you know, keeps it and, and takes it, you know, whatever, uh, still has it when, when she leaves this world. So uh, food for thought, it is a fairly common scenario where adult children uh, eventually inherit a house from, from a deceased parent. And if possible, if the parents could uh, still own the house upon passing and give it give the house to the kids upon death, it's more tax efficient than the parents selling it during life, assuming they have a lot of gain, and then um, you know giving the cash proceeds to the kids or something. So anyway, uh, I thought that was an interesting one, and, and, and probably happens more than uh, people think it does. So worth mentioning. Next, um, social security earnings test question. So this I pulled this from the Facebook group. I thought it was worth bring it up because a lot of people probably have this uh, scenario. I'm a widow for almost eight years now. I'm 62 and still working. I was told by a social security rep that it is not worth applying for my late husband's social security since my earnings are too high. I will not get anything unless I either lose my job or retire. Is this true? Thank you in advance. Well, technically TIA person said, but thank you in advance. I'm, I'm, I'm good at the acronyms. Um, yes. So what this person is referencing is something called the earnings test. So Anytime you, so oh man, there's wow, a lot of backstory here. I should have thought about this, but there's something called the full retirement age of social security. Uh, it, it's anywhere between 66 and 67 for people listening. And it, it doesn't mean you need to start benefits then or can't start them sooner or later, or you have to stop working then. It's just simply a, a benchmark age that exists. This concept of full retirement age exists only in the context of social security. It has no relevance outside social security. It's simply like that's your base case benefit is set at your social, uh, I'm sorry, your full retirement age. If you start your benefit later, it can go higher. If you start it before, it'll be lower. But why does it matter here? So this person's still alive. Her husband passed a while ago. The person, in theory, has the option to get survivor benefits, you know, whatever benefit amount the, the late husband could have gotten at, at this point. Uh, well, more to it than that. But whatever benefit the late husband could have gotten, this person could, in theory, get. However, this person's only 62 and is younger than her own full retirement age, which is uh, 67, or it might be somewhere between for her. I can't do the math that quick in my head. So 60, somewhere between 66 and 67, just suffice it to say it's good enough. Um, and she's still working, that's key. So if you're under your full retirement age and you're still working, meaning you have earned income from either wages or self-employment, if you were to start any sort of social security benefits, whether it's your own benefit, whether it's a survivor benefit off a deceased spouse, whether it's a quote unquote spousal benefit off of a living spouse who's already getting his or her own benefit, there's something called the earnings test that comes into play. If you have more earned income than a certain threshold prior to your full retirement age and you're getting any sort of social security benefits, your benefits might be reduced and they can be reduced to the point that they're wiped out completely. So for uh, specifically, if you are in the year of your full retirement age, so let's assume your full retirement age is 67, you turn 67 later this year, uh, you're only 66 and change now. Um, if you were to uh, work now and get some sort of social security benefits, any earnings you have over, and these numbers change every year, $56,520 of earnings this year, any earnings you have over that, your benefit could be reduced. It can be reduced $1 for every $3 of earnings over that threshold I just gave. 
if you are in a year younger than the year of your full retirement age, so in this person's case, her full retirement is 67, let's assume, she's only 62, so she's multiple years before full retirement age, that earnings threshold's even lower. For 2023, it's $21,240. Any amount of earnings you have over that, your social security benefits will be reduced $1 for every $2 of earnings over or reduced 50% is another way to think about it. So depending how much uh, earnings this person has, if if she has, let's just uh, make up a number, $150,000 of wages from her job, then yeah, she's, you know, 130 grand over this earnings threshold. So depending how much benefit she's getting, her benefit's going to get wiped out completely. So yes, uh, it could very well be true, uh, question asker, that depending what your earnings are, it wouldn't behoove you to start your late husband's, uh, to start survivor benefits off your late husband, because the benefit could be wiped out completely by the earnings test. You, you in fact have to either, yes, stop working or, uh, you know, hit your full retirement age, at which point this earnings test goes away. You can earn as much as you want, get social security benefits, and there'll be no reduction due to the earnings test once your full retirement age. So that that's that. Um, now for what it's worth, if you, if you are hit with this benefit reduction due to the earnings test, not all is lost. It's not like your benefits get ripped away from you, go to a black hole, you never get them back. There's more to it than this, but yeah, you, you slowly make back what was withheld once you turn your full retirement age. What the Social Security Administration does is at that time, at full retirement age, they basically recalculate your benefit to, to give you some credit for all the months they withheld when you were hit with the earnings test. Now, if you live long enough, you'll ultimately make back everything you had withheld from the earnings test and even more, uh, perhaps. If you if you don't live a long time, then yes, then you, you don't live enough to, to recoup this higher benefit from the earnings test withholding and, and you do in effect uh, lose some of your benefits and, and don't get them back. So like like most things with social security, some people make out a lot better than uh, than you know they, they put in, others get skunked and, and then everything in between. So that's the earnings test. Uh, good question. Thank you for posting that in the Facebook group. And again, the Facebook group is Retirement Planning Education, formerly known as Taxes in Retirement. Um, one more from the Facebook group. Uh, it just When I saw this, it jumped right out to me. Might be a good podcast topic. How does one file an amended tax return? Uh, if the error was a few years back, is the revised return based on the form and rules in place for the year of the error? Or is it based on the current year? And how does the new return relate to the original return? So uh, good question. If, if you, let's just, so here we are, it's 2023. Let's assume you just realized now your 2018 tax return had an error in it and uh, the error was in your favor. So, you know, you'll get money back. You already squared up your tax bill back, you know, years ago for 2018, but you now realize an error, whatever it is. And if you were to file this amended return, you'll get, let's just say 500 bucks back. So it's in your interest to go ahead and amend it. So how do you do it? Um, it is based off of the old year, you know, the 2018's return. So there's a process, whether you use TurboTax or some other software, or you can get paper. Um, actually, I don't even know if you can do electronic. I'm drawing a blank. Uh, yeah, yeah, you can. So depending how far, how far back you go, some amendments you can do electronically through TurboTax or other software. If you're going back far enough, I, I do think you have to do it on paper still. I, I don't know what the cutoff is. Um, but basically, you would take your 2018 return, and this is how all amendments work. You take the year you need to amend, your original return from that year, and the amendment is technically 1040-X, and it's part of your original 1040. And all it does, super high level, it says, here's all the original values for my original return, You know, total income, deductions, taxable income, whatever. Here's the changes. 
So let's say, oops, I, you know, I realized I overreported my income by a thousand bucks. So here's the change. You know, my, my gross income is a thousand bucks less. And here now are the final revised numbers, my revised total income deductions, taxable income, et cetera. And it also calculated at the bottom, the differential in tax. In this case, what did I say? $500 refund you're going to get. So, so that's the amendment. Um, it's, it's really, it's literally two page form. The 1040 X is two pages, but again, it, it's, it's part of the original return. So depending what changes in your original return, you'll have to change those original forms in that original year, in this case, 2018, and then slap all this stuff together. The original, uh, return with the revisions with the 1040 X on top of it. And also in 1040 X, there's a little, uh, block where you can, you literally type in, you know, explain what changes are you're making and why, and then attach that, send it all in. And there you go. Um, like I said, go, I don't remember the year, 2017, 2018, maybe you, you can start. That was one of the first years, I think, where you can start doing amendments electronically. Uh, even now I'm, I'm making this up. I'm getting confused now. So I think this year is the first year you can uh, e-file an amendment, electronically file an amendment. Um, prior years, I think you need to print it out and mail it in. You can still use tax prep software to create it, but I think you needed to. No, that, that's not even right. What am I saying? Okay, here's what it is. It's coming back to me slowly. 2017 or 18 was the first year you can start e-filing um, amended returns. What just started this year, I think, is if you if you do get a, a refund, I think this is the first year where you can request that refund be electronically deposited into a bank account. In prior years, you had to get a physical paper check mailed to you. Even if you electronically filed the amendment, you'd still get a, a physical check mailed to you. Now you can start getting them... Uh, um, direct deposit. So uh, hopefully that answers the question. I went off on a bit of a rabbit hole there, but th that's the general process. It is relatively straightforward. If you got to go back 20 years, you, you got to do it on paper. But if, you know, if you're amending 2021, 2020, whatever, you can use whatever tax prep software you use to create the original return. It should be easy enough just to plop in the changes, have that generate and crank out the amendment form, e-file it, and then uh, you know get your refund or pay the extra tax due. Uh, good question. How are we on time? Looks like almost, almost uh, not quite a half hour. All right, good enough. Um, final question. Another one pulled from the Facebook group. I was scanning through and I thought this one, uh, probably fairly common. So worth mentioning. And it goes, I plan to gift appreciated stock to a family member with current total market value below 17,000, which is a 2023 annual gifting exclusion. The total base value of the stocks is 10,000. I assume that means, uh, you know, basis, uh, is 10,000. I'm looking for help with a few questions. I would transfer the stock via Schwab accounts. Anything I need to designate this transaction as a gift? Question mark. Next bullet. If the recipient immediately sold the stocks, does she need to report seven thousand as income? Question mark. And third bullet. Anything need to be reported on my tax return and the recipient tax return for twenty twenty three? Great question. Uh, let's unpack this one at a time. So you mentioned that the current value of the stocks you're gifting is below seventeen thousand dollars. Why is that relevant? So. Um, Anytime you gift something to someone, not a charity, but like a, a person, you know, non-charity, you can gift any people, anyone, as many people as you want, up to $17,000 worth of stuff in 2023. And the IRS doesn't need to know about it. Like there's no special report. There's no taxation. There's no filing. You just simply, you can walk down the street with a fat stack of cash. You can hand out 17 grand to as many people as you want. No one needs to know anything about it. Um, you can hand out stock as well. If you have stock worth $17,000 or up to $17,000, you can hand out that stock to as many people as you want. Uh, no one needs to know about it. Now, in reality, you can't because stock isn't in physical form anymore, but you know, I'm just painting a picture here. You know, Roll with me. 
Um, once you give someone more than $17,000, you now need to report that to the IRS. Uh, I, I think I did a topic on this. If not, I will, but you know, I don't want to get too far off drilling into this one. But basically, anytime you gift more than $17,000 to any single recipient, you need to report it on something called Form 709. You almost certainly don't have to pay tax, nor does the recipient. The recipient of a gift never pays tax on the receipt of the gift. But um, the IRS wants to know about it because depending how much you gift, you can you start nibbling away at your lifetime gifting exemption. Once you give over that, which is currently like 13 million bucks uh, in this year, then you do need to start paying tax on the amounts of gifts you give beyond that. Still not taxable to recipient, but the gift giver needs to start paying tax if they gift away more than roughly $13 million in their lifetime. And that, that 13 million changes every year. So that's the $17,000. So, so good, you, you, you know, you're clear there. Uh, the original cost was 10, 10 grand. It's currently worth 17. You're gifting it to someone. What happens if they sell it? Um, I'm going out of order, but if that person sells it, when you, when you gift securities, the unrealized gain goes with it from you, the donor, to the donee slash recipient. So in your case, you have stock you bought for 10 grand, it's currently worth 17. If you were to sell it, you have a $7,000 gain. If you were to instead gift those shares to someone, whether it's a child, friend, random stranger, it doesn't matter. If and when they sell it, they'll have that same $7,000 gain. The gain, the unrealized gain doesn't go away because we gift, you know, it ports over uh, accordingly. So yes, if the, if the recipient immediately sold the stocks, they would indeed have $7,000 of realized capital gain they'd have to uh, pay tax on. Now it would be long-term, depending if you held the stock for you know more than a year or up to a year, that would dictate whether it's long-term or short-term. Um, assuming you held it more than a year, which could be a dumb assumption, but I'm just pretending. Um, so you know the, the time you held it does transfer over to the donee slash recipient as well to determine whether it's short-term or long-term. Uh, going back to your first question, you transfer the stocks via Schwab accounts. Anything you need to designate this transaction as a gift? Um, no, I don't think so. I haven't done this at Schwab yet. I've, I've done it with TD, but... Um, there's it's it's a what's called free delivery like you're not selling the stocks to someone so there's not you're not receiving something in return for consideration it's not like you're, you're transferring them 17 grand of stock and they're giving you 17 grand of cash no you're just doing a what's called free delivery of seventeen thousand dollars worth of stock into their account wherever that is maybe they have an account at schwab as well or maybe it's an account e-trade doesn't particularly matter that the function's the same you simply designate hey move 17 you know move x amount of shares of stock currently we're 17 grand or whatever it is to this account, free and clear, nothing in return. That's all you got to do. Um, Schwab doesn't care while you're doing it. The fact that it's a gift, whether or not it's taxable or reportable to the IRS, that's between you and the IRS. Schwab doesn't care. They'll just simply transfer, or, you know, uh, transact this transfer as you request. So no, anything special you need to do to, to designate that with Schwab, I, I don't believe so. There's not a TD. Again, Schwab doesn't care. They'll just do what you say. Maybe there's a flag to say it's a gift, but if, if anything, that's just for your own record keeping purposes. Again, Schwab, Schwab doesn't, doesn't care. And third question, anything need to be reported on my tax return and the recipient tax return for 2023? Uh, no, in this case, because it's under 17 grand, there's nothing you need to report to anyone because it's under 17 grand. As far as the recipient, simply receiving the stock from you is also not a reportable event to them. Uh, if and when they sell it, then it is. But then it's just like it was their stock all the while. It, you know, it's no different. It's going to show up on a 1099 at the end of the year showing their, their basis of $10,000, which was ported over from you. And then, you know, the sales price is 17, hence the uh, $7,000 taxable gain that they will need to pay uh, tax on. Good question. Um, hopefully you all, you all dug that one. So that's it. That's all I got this week. That was my, my Q and a uh, TBD. What next week topic is, if you have anything fun you want to talk about, let me know. Uh, I'll figure it out between now and then. 
Um, as always, if you like the show, it would be great if you would take a moment to give a, a review, a thumbs up, a like, a star, a, a smiley face. Uh, a written review would be super awesome. It's on Apple Podcasts. Uh, greatly appreciate it. That helps others find this podcast because the more reviews and and you know uh, likes and engagement this gets, the more it's sort of bubbled up into other people's searches for for things they may like. So. It'd be really groovy of you if you were to uh, leave a review. Thank you very much. And check out, again, the Boomer Benefits Facebook group, Medicare Q&A with Boomer Benefits. There'll be a link to that in the notes of the show. And finally, if you haven't yet familiarized yourself with the other retirement planning education stuff, you can go to retirementplanningeducation.com. We can find a link to this podcast. Well, all the episodes are directly there as well to listen to. But there's a, a link to the Facebook group, a link to the YouTube channel by the same name, and a whole host of freely downloadable goodies, checklists, uh, things I made, things I bought from other folks and, and repurposed and give to you all for free, um, files, guides, workflows, a bunch of stuff. It's like it's like your favorite gift receiving holiday came early. So that's it. Thank you as always for listening. I'll stop running my mouth now and I will see you next time. The information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, or investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you heard here, first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor. Thank you. Thank you.